Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 155 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new film Jurassic World and discussing the role of dinosaurs in fantasy and science fiction. And this will potentially involve spoilers for all four Jurassic Park movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Chris Savasco, making his fourth appearance on the show. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox, the magazine of historical and speculative fiction. And his short fiction has appeared in Nightmare Magazine and Black Static, as well as in the anthologies Shades of Blue and Gray, Ghosts of the Civil War, and Zombies, Shambling Through the Ages. He's also written a psychological thriller about Lady Godiva and a wartime resistance thriller set immediately after the Norman Conquest, both of which he's currently shopping around to agents. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. And also joining us today is Genevieve Valentine, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 40 and our panel on Angels and Heaven back in episode 69. She's the author of the novels Persona, Mechanique, and The Girls at the Kingfisher Club, and she's currently scripting the Catwoman comic for DC Comics. Her review of Jurassic World, Jurassic World is All Park and No Bite, recently appeared on io9. So Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thanks. And also joining us today is Seth Dickinson, who you may remember from our panel on Cyberpunk back in episode 53. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Clark's World, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And his first novel, The Traitor Baruch Cormorant, will be published this fall by Tor Books. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. All right, so let's start out and talk about the original three Jurassic Park movies. So, Chris, why don't we start with you and just tell us a bit about, were you a fan of the first three Jurassic Park movies? Uh, I certainly enjoyed the first one. Um, You know, it was, uh, I I should say that when I saw it, I came into it having read the book. Um, Interestingly enough, having been assigned to read the book in a college course uh, on dinosaurs. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> so I, 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 yeah, go figure. But, um, you know, so I went into it, uh, expecting it to be, you know, obviously it was going to be an action movie, but I think I was expecting more of what was in the book to have filtered into there. I mean, the book is really, uh, very focused on all the sort of chaos theory that the Jeff Gold- Goldblum character talks about, but that, that really almost makes up the lion's share of the book. I mean, they talk about fractals and everything, and, and, and all of that was basically just stripped away, understandably so, for the movie. So, I mean, I, as a fun, you know, summer popcorn flick, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, you know, obviously, some of it was a bit silly and over the top, as, as it inevitably would be. But, um, you know, overall, it was, it was a fun popcorn movie. The, the other two movies, uh, you know, I think were less successful just sort of trying to imitate the first one and um uh with with less degree of success um i don't know i uh you know i I certainly never became one you know a huge fanboy for for the films but um i i remember them with sort of a warm nostalgia i guess you could say i mean so i i guess i'm a couple years young younger than you are because i was i don't remember exactly how old i was but i think i was young enough that the first movie made a much bigger impression on me than it seems to have made on you. Cause I, I, really... well, I mean, yeah, I mean, when, when the movie came out, I was in college. So, you know, I, I definitely wasn't a, a, a little kid anymore. So, um, I think, right. Didn't the first movie come out in, in the, in the early nineties, I think. 
Yeah, 93? 92, 93, something like that. So yeah, so I mean, I was in college at, at that point. And um, I think if I had seen it, you know, as a kid, um, I think it would have had a, a very different kind of impact on me than it did as, as a young adult. Well, how about Genevieve? Uh, what did you think of the original Jurassic Park? Uh, I think... Chris actually makes a very good point that there seems to be an age at which you get into dinosaurs where Jurassic Park makes a huge impression on you because it is bringing some innately childlike thing to life. Um, I enjoyed Jurassic Park very much, and I think that from a cinema standpoint, it is flawlessly structured. Like, everything there pays off down mm. to the last glass of water. Like, there is <laughs> nothing wasted in this film. It's it's amazing in that way. Um I was never a particular fan of dinosaurs. We were talking right before we started recording that I have some kind of dinosaur name aphasia where someone will tell me the name and I'll think, that's nice, and it immediately floats out of my head. <laughs> um, so for me, the fun of it was watching a very self-referential blockbuster, basically spending two hours to convince you that even though you come in knowing what a bad idea this is, you'd still go. Like, you'd absolutely still go. Even <laughs> running from dinosaurs and barely surviving is pretty cool. And I think the second two movies were sort of in conversation with the first one in a way that was more interesting for them than it was for me in a lot of ways. Like they had the recurring characters, which was nice. And every, you know, the Jurassic Park word had gotten out, which is nice because there's no way you could keep something like that a secret. Like someone's going to tell. Um, so it was interesting watching sort of the world expand, but the films themselves sort of felt like side adventures of the films that you actually wanted to be seeing that happened after Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. How about Seth? Uh, what did you think of these movies? Well, I don't want to make this awkward, uh, but I think I'm younger than all of you guys. Uh, so for me, my... Please leave now. <laughs> I'll show myself out. Uh, I think my first encounter was actually with the uh, the second Crichton novel, Lost World, uh, which was just lying around our house. And I was a kid and I read it. Uh, and it taught me the word fuck, which I hope I'm allowed to say on this show. Uh, yeah, yeah, you are. It's cool. My mom was shocked because I read this book and then we were standing on our uh, our porch and I said, I wish we had a fucking kitchen, mom. <laughs> And uh, she didn't know where I'd learned it. Uh, so for me, because I'd read the, the sequel book first, uh, Jurassic Park was always this sort of mythical thing. Even the characters uh, made reference to these events. They knew all about it. And then the first time I saw the movie, uh, it starts with this horrifying scene where this man gets eaten by a velociraptor while they're trying to move the raptor's cage around. And uh, I thought it was a horror movie. And I didn't get to see the full thing uh, for a long time because the only way for me to watch it was to catch chunks of it at friends' houses who had it on uh, VHS. So it's weird because it came to me kind of as this cultural presence um, rather than something I saw in the theater. Uh, and so I have many more memories of thinking about it and imagining it before I saw it than I do of actually watching it. Well, wait, so Seth, you say you thought it was a horror movie, so you don't think that it is a horror, you don't think of it as a horror movie? It's absolutely terrifying uh, when you're that age. But I... I don't think of it first as a horror movie, no. I think of it as an action adventure with a lot of animals. Hmm. I mean, certain because I was young enough, so I can remember I had like the big ticket in my hand and I was like nervously fidgeting with it the whole movie. And by the end, I just ripped it up into confetti because the, you know, the movie <laughs> made me so nervous. But because I know, and like I said, I was a big, big fan of the original Jurassic Park. I, I really, really liked it. And I really, really hated the sequel. Uh, I honestly don't really remember much about it. The only part that I really sticks in my head is there's this ghastly scene where this girl like does gymnastics in this room and kicks a dinosaur out a window. 
And it was just, it just, just the stupidest thing I'd ever seen. And I, so I never actually saw Jurassic Park three because I, I disliked the sequel so much. Um, but I'll say the one, the thing that from the original Jurassic Park that really sticks in my mind is the scene where the, there's like a sleazy lawyer and he runs and hides in the outhouse. And yeah. then the T-Rex like knocks the outhouse away and then bites him. And when, when, when the dinosaur bites him, the whole audience cheered that I was with, uh, cause he's a lawyer. I have a question about that because that is the scene that everybody mentions first. Like that is the most emotionally satisfying scene is that a character that we hardly know who is doing his job gets eaten by a monster and everyone is totally thrilled. And in Jurassic World, we have the scene where the assistant who is doing her job gets eaten in like the worst way I've ever seen anyone get eaten by a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. I want to ask Chris, though, as a, as a lawyer, how do you feel about the audience cheering when the lawyer gets eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex? <laughs> well, particularly given the tenor of this conversation, let me first stress that I'm a former lawyer. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but speaking as a former lawyer, no, I, I think the reason that that was so satisfying was because it... Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, Genevieve. He was just some poor schlub doing his job you know why why was there this glee when we saw him get eaten but but he also represented all of the sort of very mercenary money-making side of the entire endeavor like he wasn't in it for the wonder of the of the science or the the wonder of the you know bringing joy to the masses he 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 was just looking at the dollars and cents and you know as far as i recall right and i, I mean i think it was just sort of like seeing that character get eaten is always going to be there's going to be a certain satisfaction well chris you mentioned the chaos theory stuff and i read the book as a kid but i don't remember it that well and at least the way it's portrayed in the movie i've always been highly skeptical of the idea that there's a scientific principle that says that you can't keep dinosaurs confined in an amusement park um (laughs) yeah no i don't i don't think that that's really what chaos theory is about but uh yeah, and you got to realize too. I'm talking. I, I read this book, whatever it was, now 25 years ago. So the, the details of it are a bit hazy, but I do remember that 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 was far more important in the in the book. Not just about the ability to keep the dinosaurs contained, but just about the entire sort of science behind the sort of genetic manipulation of you know the mosquito remnants and whatnot. Right. And, and Jurassic Park is sort of an awful of ideas. Or at least, I mean, maybe they're not great ideas. I don't know. It's hard to say at this remove of time. But there, you know, there are people and they stand for different things. They stand for different philosophical approaches and scientific approaches. A lot of the characters are scientists, you know. Um, I know, Seth, what do you think about that? Do you, do you have any opinions on the, the whole chaos theory thing or just the, the way that the movie portrays scientists? Yeah, uh, it was, you know, it was much bigger in the book. But um, I do remember there being this sort of pervasive sense of, uh, of wonder and possibility uh, about the scientific stuff. Everyone remembers the uh, sort of the mascot, the DNA mascot uh, in the first movie who walked you through the process. Um, and it was, in fact, it was such a big thing in uh, both the movie and the book that the whole pitch for the sequel uh, comes out of the sequence where in the first movie where you're shown how the dinosaurs are made um, and when uh, Crichton was asked to write a sequel, which sort of turned into the sequel movie, um, his idea was that they had skipped a step that had to happen that was happening on another island. Uh, and I was always really interested in those those technical details, but also in the fact that the the characters, the paleontologists, the mathematicians, all have really strong opinions even before they get 
um, to the island. And as soon as they see the dinosaurs, part of their excitement is that this is a chance for them to settle some of their arguments about how the dinosaurs acted, um, about how they would behave in an ecosystem, uh, which I thought was really cool. Uh, it made a lot of sense to me that beyond just like, oh, cool, there are dinosaurs, uh, the dinosaur specialists would see this as this incredible gift. Um, and then there was the menace of the fact that the dinosaurs were kind of counterfeit, that they'd been spliced with frog DNA. Uh, and there's this whole question about how much of this, the dinosaurs were true and how much had been made by people. Right, right. And so, Genevieve, uh, do you want to jump in here about the science? And, I mean, you mentioned in your review of Jurassic World that you didn't think much of the characters in that movie. Do you want to talk about the characters in this movie and the scientists? Did you like them? Did you think that they were well done in the original? I think at least in the original, what Seth is saying is correct. Like, each of them had an interesting point of view, and we came at all of them from a point of respect. Like, not all of them respected one another, but we were all meant to understand that they were there because they were good at what they did. And each of them sort of fell under the spell of Jurassic Park and out of it as things went along. Uh, in the same way that I think Heyman sort of avoided being a total cliche because he actually was so excited about being able to share this kind of thing with everyone. And he actually thought that he was doing some amazing scientific work that would also be super fun for families. And then when it all falls apart, he has genuine remorse. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that part of what was missing about Jurassic World in terms of characters is that the character who knows what he is doing is such an asshole. Like, such an asshole, and he has no arc. He learns nothing, nothing changes. He's right the first time he steps on the screen, and he's right the last time we see him. Um, and the, uh, the operations manager who is running the park is sort of the lawyer from Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm who then is put in a pair of high heels so that we hope that she doesn't die long enough to kiss Chris Pratt. Uh, and then she has to learn to be more maternal. And, you know, her arc has has nothing to do with sort of overcoming this environment that she's in. And he has no arc at all. Uh, in Jurassic Park, everybody sort of faces a thing and learns from it, including... I mean, especially Sam Neill's character who sort of comes in hating kids and learns that, like, under pressure kids also have personalities. And my favorite thing about the third Jurassic Park movie is he still does not want any kids because realizing kids have personality does not mean that you necessarily want kids of your own. And, like, obviously, you know, three movies from now, we might have some really good payoff for the Chris Pratt character. <laughs> um, but everybody in Jurassic Park started at one place and ended up in another place, unless it was Jeff Goldblum, who only had, like, 20 lines in that entire movie and spent the rest of the time with his shirt open, just like lying down waiting to be rescued. <laughs> um, but the two characters that we're supposed to spend a lot of time with in Jurassic World, one of them is sort of slammed back and forth by the narrative in a way that I think is really unfortunate. And the other one is constantly right and goes through absolutely no revelations whatsoever. And then you have like two really bland kids whose mom might be divorcing, but we don't know and who cares. And then a bunch of people who are clearly cannon fodder. And it's like, oh, okay. Great, thanks. Um, which I think is funny because you would never say that the best part of a dinosaur movie is the people, but clearly when the people are terrible, the entire dinosaur movie suffers. Right, right. Well, let's say a bit more about, like, so, so Jurassic World, they decided to go with the idea of they've opened up a park and it's got dinosaurs in it and it's been operational for a number of years. And this is an idea, I guess, that came from Steven Spielberg. Um, but basically... 
like this this movie had like a an unbelievable development hell uh they they tried to bring back a I mean like Sam Neill was signed on for a while Laura Dern was signed on for a while I think Jeff Goldblum was signed on for a while and they just went through they cycled through directors and actors and all sorts of stuff and the previous drafts they had had the it sounds like it had gotten kind of crazy where they had like high, like mercenaries who were like hybrids of humans and dinosaurs and it, it just was that the John Sayles script I think I think that's true yeah yeah okay yes um and uh and so then they got they brought this guy uh colin trevorrow on the director and he's like all right we gotta like pull this back and so basically they took the idea of a theme park a dinosaur theme park that's in operation and the idea of kind of like uh the the military industrial complex wants to use the dinosaurs and uh sort of blended those two ideas so the movie is kind of like i don't know it's kind of like jurassic park meets aliens uh in a way but um well, why don't you say a bit more, Jenny? If you said the Chris Pratt character is kind of an asshole, do you want to just say, uh, so say a bit more about that? <laughs> um, oh God, all right. Uh, so what Jurassic World is, is the kind of movie that makes fun of the fact that there is corporate sponsorship of the dinosaurs in a movie that has almost more corporate sponsorship than any film I've ever seen. And you can... You know, you can say that's tongue-in-cheek, and you can say that's self-aware, and that's perfectly fine, because all of these movies have been self-aware, but, like, The Lost World was self-aware, that doesn't make it good. And I think in the same way, we have this Chris Pratt character who is so pointedly and deliberately sort of a Han Solo guy, you know, the alpha male, like, quite literally the alpha male, um, who disrespects our female protagonist, who is always right. And who eventually, like, does the most amazing heroic thing and, like, has the touching moment of communication with the dinosaur where, like, now they have an understanding. And all I could think was we have entered an era of Jurassic Park where not even velociraptors get to do anything without some dude's input. Well, well and there's, there's the scene in particular, the, the first scene between Chris Pratt and um, Bryce Dallas Howard, I just found totally gross. Um, and when they released this online, Joss Whedon said... Uh, he he called this this scene seventies era sexist. Um, so what do you guys, uh, uh, Chris? Do you want to? What did you think about about that scene? Yeah. Well, well, I agree. I mean, it just seemed, uh, you know, like gratuitously. So I I don't know why they needed to go. Well, they didn't need to go in that direction with the Chris Pratt character because, it, interestingly enough, I think um, the the Chris Pratt character is so hobbled as a character in the movie by that sort of sexist streak that it unfortunately dilutes what what in some ways um is what the movie should have been in my opinion more about because i think it, it's ironic that um he is fighting against this idea that the rest of the park employees have that like uh you know the public has become so sort of uh you know blase about dinosaurs that they need to create new you know non-existent dinosaurs and and i, I can understand that dynamic, you know, makes for some interesting scenes. But at the same time, I think the movie itself becomes blasé about all of the dinosaurs uh, in a way that's it does a disservice to us as the audience, because I, I would still have liked to have seen, uh, you know, more of the, the sort of wonder that we saw through the eyes of the scientists in that first Jurassic Park movie as they're seeing these living, breathing dinosaurs. And I think that's in some ways what I remember most about that first movie is just, you know, the wonder of seeing these dinosaurs come back to life. And instead, 
but for the the um the, you know the invented dinosaur that basically takes center stage throughout all of Jurassic World the other dinosaurs are just kind of window dressing in the background we, we, you know perhaps with the the one exception of the scene where Chris Pratt and uh the woman are are leaning over the the dying sauropod and and it's it's very much you know at that point that dinosaur and it's living or dying you know takes center <laughs> stage and you you sort of step back for a moment at the audience and, and think like oh my gosh yes this is an actual dinosaur and it's now dead and you know but except for that one scene i really felt like all the other dinosaurs were basically there as window dressing including the velociraptors i mean i i feel like the, you know because they were sort of weaponized they they could have just been like you know robots it, it, they didn't even have to be dinosaurs anymore and i think that that's what the movie lost that it you know it really shouldn't have and and as i said getting back to what i started saying it's unfortunate because chris pratt his character seemed to be the one character that still felt like guys don't you understand these are like extinct animals these are dinosaurs we're we're, we're working with every day and you know isn't that wondrous enough why do we have to be creating all these other bells and whistles and you know, but then of course that all gets lost be beneath him giving zingers and one-liners <laughs> to you know. I uh, I actually had a lot of thoughts on this, so David. If you don't mind, yeah, I'll go go for it. Throw them in, but first, actually, I wanted to also agree with Genevieve about uh, Chris Pratt's character Owen. Um, and one thing that really bugged me about the relationship, the dynamic between Owen and Claire. Uh, is that Claire is pitched as kind of superficially competent, but uh, she keeps making these mistakes, and it's the movie thinks she keeps making mistakes. And it's not until she goes out in the field with Owen and gets in touch with nature and has adventures that she becomes a really like effective, complete person. But the problem with that is that uh, Owen is the one who actually lets the dinosaur out. Um, he's the one who screws up, and the movie doesn't seem to notice uh, that Claire's response to the situation where she leaves the cage and goes to find the control center where they can look at the tracking implant, <laughs> would have solved everything. They would have said, oh, the Indominus Rex is still in its cage and it's trying to trick us. Owen, meanwhile, opens up the doors and goes in to look for it and lets it out. Um, and so the whole movie, I was like waiting for someone to say, hey, Owen, like, this is all your fault. Why did you do that? Uh, and I thought it was really unfair that he got away with that. Um, and in terms of what Chris was saying uh, about the movie not really being interested in dinosaurs, that's also, uh, that was really on my mind. Because first Jurassic Park is about this fantasy of what if you could go to an island and, uh, you know, hang out with dinosaurs and look at them and see what they were like. Uh, and then, although it's not as successful, the second movie has this fantasy of what if the dinosaurs were actually out in the world on their own without human interference? Um, and it felt like, Jurassic World was more about this kind of problem of how do you make another movie about dinosaurs and make <laughs> it interesting. Um, and for me, that all came down to this one moment, the really big, uh, the first truly legendary shot in the first Jurassic Park is when Sam Neill gets out of the Jeep and looks up and there's the John Williams music and he sees this Apatosaurus. Uh, and it's the first time he's ever seen a dinosaur. And in Jurassic World, when they do that shot again, when they have this triumphant statement of the theme, they're not looking at the dinosaurs, they're looking at the park. They sweep over the, uh, all the buildings and all the visitors. Uh, and it felt like it was saying that this movie was about something different. And it wasn't about dinosaurs, it was about how people are entertained by dinosaurs, the different ways. And 
one of the hardest things about it wasn't like personally difficult for me, but it really disappointed me that almost all the movies, the the dinosaurs in the movie are treated as interesting because they can commit violence against people in some way. We don't really see the dinosaurs out in the wild doing much. Uh, it's mostly about can they kill men with guns? Can they kill tourists in the park? Um, can they kill each other? Can they kill a helicopter? Can they team up to fight? It was a little cynical. Bugged me. Well, well, Seth, I want to mention, so there's a quote from the director I saw where he says that this genetically engineered dinosaur, the Indominus Rex, he says it was meant to embody humanity's worst tendencies. We're surrounded by wonder and yet we want more. We want it bigger, faster, louder, better. And that's sort of like, there's something so interesting about this movie to me in that about 15% of it is sort of a satire or somehow subversive and attacking really dumb action movie cliches, while the other 85% of it is committing those cliches in the worst possible way. (laughs) And it's just something so bizarre. I mean, if it had been like a little bit more 50-50 or something, I think the movie would have been a lot more successful. But there's just these little like flashes of subversiveness in a movie that's so relentlessly wrote otherwise. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, yeah. I actually thought that the cleverest shot in the movie was that panning over the park. I mean, get that music where it's like, this is going to be amazingly glorious. And you realize that they're panning in on what is essentially a Starbucks followed by the Margaritaville followed by the gift shop. Um, <laughs> and I agree, it's a totally cynical shot. But at the same time, I feel like the only thing that movie had going for it was the fact that it realizes that a park is such a bad idea, but it knew ahead of time it was going to do such good box office that no one could say, why would you even go to that park? Because it's like, it made half a billion dollars in one weekend. People would go to that park. People <laughs> would line up for that park. Um, but I agree. I think the fact that reducing the dinosaurs to a series of effects to sort of drive you from one Jurassic Park nostalgia moment to another, which was another element of the movie that I want to get everybody's take on, because... After like the third time, I was just like, why do you keep referencing a much better movie in an attempt to make this movie have some kind of weight? Um, by the time the kids ended up in the, like the Jurassic Park dome where the, uh, where the banner was, and you're just looking at it like, yeah. you have not earned this, Jurassic World. You have not earned any of this. <laughs> I mean, just from a practical standpoint, I guess they, they probably felt like, once they did not get people like Sam Neill and Laura Dern and everyone else on board, I mean, just to, they, they probably felt this pressure to give it continuity because they did want it to be a sequel rather than a reboot, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, after a while, you kind of felt like you were being hammered over the head with that. We, it's like, yeah, we, we get it. This is the same island. This is, you know, this is the continuation, but, um, I mean, I, I, I to, to me, that's, it was just their, their, their attempt to, uh, patch over the fact that we didn't have any returning actors and actresses. I thought it was interesting. As far as I could tell, they had just, this movie pretends that the two other sequels never happened. Was I correct in that interpretation? I think it's, it distances itself (laughs) from them, but I'm not sure it's totally impossible that they ever happened. For whatever this counts for, the movie's viral marketing website, uh, name-checked events in Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. Uh, but that's just peripheral material. That's interesting, because it's it's just a little hard for me to imagine this theme park being built after dinosaurs had rampaged down through downtown whatever city it was. San Diego, San Diego I think. I'm yeah. not sure. Well, 
maybe from, you know, the lawyer's standpoint, but, but I mean, I think in some ways that having happened might've actually been the best publicity ever for it. You know, I mean, in, in the same, you know, it's just this sort of rubbernecking instinct. I think <laughs> I, I wouldn't surprise me if half the people go there hoping the dinosaurs are going to break out, you know? <laughs> Well, Chris, you mentioned that you're a big dinosaur fan and you know a lot about dinosaurs. What did you think of the dinosaurs in this movie from a like scientific standpoint? Well, I mean, well, first of all, you know, not notwithstanding my my one college course on dinosaurs, most of my <laughs> dinosaur knowledge dates from my my uh, intense study of dinosaurs between the ages of about you know four and ten. So, you know, what I know, you know, I remember studying them back when. Um, Apatosaurus, which is now Brontosaurus, apparently, again, was, you know, being called Brontosaurus in all the books. But um, so, you know, I, I think they basically made a conscious decision at some point, particularly for this movie, not to worry too much about the scientific plausibility of their dinosaurs, because, they, they, you know, I mean, science had discovered between the first movie and this movie about the feathers and whatnot on, on velociraptors and on, on many other dinosaurs. And they made a conscious choice not to add the feathers in because, you know, arguably it's because that, you know, it wouldn't have been canon and they wanted to keep, yeah, you know, keep it consistent with the original movie. But uh, as I think I read in, in, in some review, they could have gotten around that by saying, oh, you know, now we've started realizing we shouldn't have been using frog DNA to fill in the blanks, but bird DNA. And now the, the actual feathers that should have been there all along are, are expressing themselves. Um, you know, so, so. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of the biology and the and and whatnot that they're totally getting wrong, um, and which they got wrong in the original one too. I mean, the the venom spitting dinosaur doesn't actually have neck frills or spit venom, so you know it's like um, that's that sort of just goes with the territory with these movies. It's you know you don't you don't go to these movies to actually learn science about dinosaurs, or at least you should. What about Mister DNA? Yeah, well, the DNA stuff, you know, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, they're using the DNA guy to explain how they're <laughs> that they're doing something that probably wouldn't be plausible even if we found mosquitoes with dinosaur DNA in them. I mean, one thing that's interesting, though, Chris, is that, I mean, I, I read some commentary online where people are saying that the, the technique of, you know, extracting blood from mosquitoes and amber is, is not scientifically possible, but that we might be able to create dinosaurs by activating genes that are still present in, you know, that are sort of um, dormant in um, descendants of dinosaurs, like birds, whatever. So it's semi-possible to genetically engineer some sort of dinosaur that way. And I just wonder if they, sh if they should have just rebooted this and used that as the explanation for the dinosaurs and made the dinosaurs more you know, consistent with modern knowledge of science and we would have had new dinosaur designs. And I don't know, that seems like it might've been more interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess from a cinematic standpoint, it might not have been as terrifying and exciting to see a big giant bird, you know, chasing people around the screen. <laughs> so I can understand just from a, from a sort of very practical mercenary standpoint of, of movie making, um, why, why they might have wanted to keep them looking more lizard-like and sinister and sleek looking. But, um, but I will say that, um, you know, for all of the science that they get wrong in the movie, I think most people are, are well, actually, I don't think most people are, but, but I think a lot of people are savvy enough to realize that they're not supposed to be learning the science of dinosaurs from watching Jurassic Park movies. And, and, but what I think is actually interesting is that, you know, 
like most things, it's going to spark an interest, uh, particularly in the in like younger kids who are seeing these movies um, in dinosaurs, if they didn't already have that interest. And, and, you know, then they'll go and seek out the science elsewhere. And, and, and one thing that I thought was interesting was, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, um, Michael Swanwick, who has written a bunch of short stories and novels about dinosaurs, um, actually posted something on Facebook where he was pointing out that there's a new Jurassic World tie-in dinosaur field guide, but that he was actually really excited to see this because it's actually authored by two um, top paleontologists in their field. It's uh, Thomas Holtz and and Michael Brett's uh, sermon. And, you know, he said, notwithstanding the sort of tie-in aspect of it, he was anticipating that this was going to be a really excellent field guide uh, to dinosaurs. And so even though it has the, the Jurassic World logo front and center on the cover, I mean, what did what did Genevieve or Seth? What do you guys think about the way that should the dinosaurs have had feathers? What did you think about them just visually? Um, I am definitely pro feather. Uh, I think it would have been really striking. Um, there was actually a decent paleontologist. I, I think he's well regarded, Paul Serrano at Chicago, and uh, when I was a student there, and he gave a big talk about how he thought all dinosaurs had feathers. And uh, I understand why the Jurassic Park designs are iconic, um, but I would have loved to see the feathers on screen. Um, for me, in terms of the science and plausibility of the dinosaurs, I liked a lot of it. Uh, I think the only thing that really rubbed me the wrong way was that I think part of the fantasy of watching a monster movie, especially a Jurassic Park movie, is that uh, we're all there to watch people get eaten. Like, no one's disappointed when some guy gets eaten. We don't, like, feel let down. We're there to see this uh, sort of carnage. And part of it is because we like the sense that these people have, you know, meddled with the primal forces of nature and uh, they kind of deserve what's happening because it's the natural order. They're screwing around with these 65 million year old predators and of course they're going to get devoured. Uh, But a lot of the dinosaurs in Jurassic World felt like they weren't acting like animals. Uh, They were acting like devices. And the Indominus, I thought, was supposed to be like a device. It was this sort of blackfish of dinosaurs that had been driven insane by the way it was created and raised. And so it was just killing uh, like a man-eater or something because it could. But the raptors and the other predators, um, like why would a raptor chase a jeep for a long way (laughs) down a a road? Does it like really want to eat those kids? Is it worth expending all that energy? Uh, I guess... I am in some way like a dinosaur kill purist in that I want to see the people get eaten because they're acting like prey. I don't want to see them get eaten because the dinosaurs are acting like uh, movie monsters who just need to create tension, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's good. Genevieve, pro feathers or no feathers? You know, I mean, I'm pro feathers just in terms of, like, even even the fact that the Jurassic Park dinosaurs are iconic, I think that you could make iconic-looking dinosaurs that have feathers. Like, I don't think that is beyond the $8 trillion of CGI that was spent to make this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking about uh, what Chris said about all of these dinosaurs feeling like props, not like animals that you were watching in the wild. And I was thinking back to how much of Jurassic Park is just little pieces of information about the dinosaurs. And I was thinking about the gyroscope ugh, in Jurassic World. 
and how the entire time we're listening to that nonsense Jimmy Fallon cameo, it's explaining to you how the gyroscope works and not what the dinosaurs are. Yeah. And how that is such a perfect encapsulation of like how the focus of the film is totally off the dinosaurs themselves. All right, so I feel like we're we're being pretty critical of this movie, which is, is understandable because I did have a lot of issues with it. But uh, I would say that, over, I mean, if you're excited to go see a Jurassic Park kind of movie, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say don't go see this one. I mean, it's fun. It's just kind of dumb. But um, I don't know. Maybe we should say a little bit about what we liked about the movie, uh, if anyone has anything. I mean, the the thing, I mean, I thought that Chris Pratt character uh was i didn't like the way it was written at all but i thought that he did a fantastic given the material that he had to work with i thought he did a fantastic job and it just really made me think like oh i could definitely see this guy as indiana jones or nathan drake or whatever um so that's one thing i liked about the movie does anyone else have anything positive they want to say about this movie while i totally agree with seth's critique that nothing in the film is actually the way a dinosaur would behave I appreciated the fact that after so many by-the-numbers moments, he was like, what if I also did a by-the-numbers Godzilla moment, and then a by-the-numbers <laughs> Jaws moment, and then a by-the-numbers Western moment, where the two gunslingers acknowledged that they'll meet again and then part ways, and did them all within about 90 seconds. And I was like, oh, okay. It was the one part of the movie that actually felt fun to me. Is like... The T-Rex out of nowhere, suddenly this random team-up, then the Jaws moment, then the raptor and Chris Pratt's character being like, partner, and then parting ways. And I was like, okay, this is the one moment where it felt like they realized they were over the top and they were going to lean into it, as opposed to just trying to be like, what if we had like a pteranodon that also had a T-Rex head and then we just never do anything about it? And I was like, what? What are you doing? That's all I have about this movie that I like. I will be perfectly honest. The, the, the one positive thing I could say about it is, as long as I kept reminding myself to sort of turn my brain off, you know, whenever I would have that instinctive moment of like, wait a minute, but, I'd be, you know, I'd be like, nah, 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 don't overthink it. I, it. It certainly, you know, kept my interest for the whole time. I, I, I didn't ever, you know, feel like oh god like i mean i wasn't like looking at my watch the whole time you know it was it was an exciting popcorn film it was it was fun to watch as long as you didn't think about it too much and as long as you sort of ignored the the goofy dialogue and and, and whatnot but um you know I, I i suppose i had as much fun watching it as i did certainly either of the two original sequels you know two or three i really love the ending i felt like uh i mean i didn't love everything about it but i felt like the movie really loosened up and uh it was we've been talking about the meta aspect in the movie and i think it was it was kind of cool that uh the movie was willing to have this very cynical uh action and guns will the like military velociraptors kill the genetically engineered t-rex raptor hybrid plot line and then end with like this is all pretty stupid and what you really <laughs> want to see is the original dinosaurs just tear all this apart <laughs> there was a purity to that i kind of admired and i was really willing to root for the old jurassic park coming to beat up the new jurassic park that was cool <laughs> yes and i was thinking about that in terms of what genevieve was talking about with the corporate sponsorship and how these productions are so big and there's so much internal politics uh that probably a lot of the creative team felt that you know they 
they did have this cynical product, but they could be subversive about it. I what I've read about the director's intentions um, kind of goes with that. And the other thing I wanted to say is I thought Bryce Dallas Howard also did a really good job uh, with the material she had when she was allowed her character Claire to to like do things on her own um, and to not be constantly undermined by some other character or the script. I thought she was really good. Uh, I thought she should have been more clearly the movie's protagonist, which is something I think the director has said was his intent. Um, Cause she's the only one with an arc, even if it's kind of obnoxious. Um, I thought she was really good. Uh, I enjoyed watching her bait the T-Rex and uh, figure out plans and do the, uh, the flares. Um, the, in the original Ian Malcolm has the iconic moment of trying to bait the T-Rex with the flare. And letting her do that um, was kind of interesting because uh, not only is it a big hero moment, but uh, Ian Malcolm in the original was the outer, like the outsider. He was the meta, I think Genevieve, you called him the meta observer. He was the only one who knew everything was going to go to hell. Um, so it was cool to see Claire get to embrace that role uh, and become the agent of chaos in her own park. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Genevieve, you mentioned earlier the the horrific death of uh, oh, Bryce God. Dallas Howard's assistant. Do you want to say, say <laughs> let's let's go back to that. What, say a bit more about that. I mean, I think it was just one of those attempts to inject that over the top sensibility or that sort of sense of unpredictable fun, where like, how many times can we make them think that she's going to be okay, and then tear that all away from her? But I, it was one of those things where it's not like this film had women to spare um we're introduced to a weepy mom who never shows up again who might be getting a divorce and the two kids that we don't care about who might be the object of this divorce we don't care about which again like i spent most of this movie thinking back to how it maps over jurassic park and i was like do you know how jurassic park opened because this is not doing it like this is not cutting it um And I guess after all of this discussion, I can see how the director thought that he was doing something subversive and something sort of campy and like seeing how it could go. But I also feel like this is a movie that constantly undermines the women characters. Um, And I think it was worse for her because it wasn't that she was distracted making personal phone calls. She was actually on a phone call telling someone not to come to her boss's bachelor party because he was gross. Wow. And so it was one of those things where like she's in the middle of a phone call warning someone off a gross dude. And then she gets killed five times. And you're like, is it well, necessary? Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, I totally agree. And and it didn't even, regardless of what the purpose of her call was, I mean, the, the kids were actively trying to escape her. You know, it's not like right. she was being negligent and just lost track of them because she was off partying somewhere. I mean, like, they made a break for it. And, and but it's, you know, she was such a bizarre character, apart from anything else. Uh, she, I, I, did she have more than like four lines in the whole movie or like no. two? She said like two words. And so, I, you know, for, for a long time when she comes to pick up the kids, I'm like, is this character a mute? Like I, she never spoke. She just was it's like, is this the Terminator? Like who has shown up here? Uh, I mean, was that striking how, how little she spoke? And so having never really heard her speak or react or interact or do anything or have any agency she was like like literally just a cardboard cutout and so i thought it was a really sort of odd choice then 
to have that be the character that we have this huge, you know, crazy, like the craziest death scene in the whole movie over a character that had literally zero character development. I mean, you didn't hate her. You didn't love her. She was just like a, an enigma. It was just like, who, who is she? Like you kept waiting for her, for her to like reveal something that explained how, you know, how much of a lack of personality she had. And then said she just got eaten 50 ways. Well, Chris, when I lived in Hollywood, I don't know if this is the case in here, but I heard that if they give you three lines, they have to pay you as an actor. Whereas <laughs> yeah. if you only have two lines, well, you can be, they just pay you as an extra. So I don't know if maybe that was, there was something like that involved there. Yeah, well. She was on Merlin for like three seasons. She has yeah. her SAG card. Give her some lines. <laughs> yeah. Like Genevieve said, I I'd heard she was played by a actress of, you know, some reputation who has had work before. Uh, and like Chris, I was trying to figure out what was going on with her presentation on screen. Uh, at one point, I thought she might be a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> right. Because it was just so strange how the movie was handling her. And on top of mm-hmm. everything everyone else has said about how the movie did not earn that really brutal death. Um, the weirdest uh, other thing about her presentation was that they characterize uh, the senior of the two boys as being really into women. Uh, and he just like checks out and hits on everyone. And I couldn't believe that this teenage boy uh, being told that he'd been assigned his aunt's personal assistant as a babysitter would not be like overjoyed that he had this <laughs> captive audience. Uh, I kept waiting for them to hit the, you know, awkward young romance beat. Um, so I was also totally puzzled by this character. Well, Chris mentioned that she's kind of a cardboard character, but really every character in this movie is cardboard. I mean, that was one of the things that really struck me is every character in this movie is like one dimensional in the sense that you can sum them up in, you know, there's like the nerdy kid and like everyone has just a a two word yeah. phrase you could use to describe them. They never do a single thing that that goes against that in any way. I disagree. Okay, let's hear it. I think there was, there was one character I actually kind of liked. Um, the scientist, Dr. Wu, who was back from the original. Uh, the, the dinosaur genius. I wanted him to get more screen time. I thought uh, I was but, very but he has, he has It's again with the subversive but not really thing. I mean, he says, like, I'm not some mad scientist. But like, he is just a mad scientist. I mean, if, if, if he's not a mad scientist, it, it was lost on me. I think that's fair. The movie doesn't give him a lot to do. Do you think they set him up to appear again, though? Because he appears in a helicopter that was not eaten by Pteranodons, which is what I yeah. thought was going to happen. Um, so he's still alive and floating around out there and being, quote-unquote, taken care of. And I'm sure, you know, they probably have four sequels planned already, given this weekend. Well, <laughs> I, I, maybe there's already been some information leaked about upcoming scripts or whatever. But to me, I, I mean, in the absence of having read any of that, like I, to me, it seemed that... I actually hate what it looks like they're going to do. It looks to me like they set it up that um, not only the, the Dr. Wu character, but the, um, uh, the you know, the, the, the military guy. What, what was his name? Uh, well, the Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio, that guy? Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio's character. He escapes. No, no, well. he gets does eaten. He, does he get eaten? Yeah, yeah he gets raptured. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I must have missed that. All right, well, anyway. But, but it, before he gets eaten, he orchestrates the um the d- to have dr Wu basically smuggle all the the embryos and whatnot out of the lab right mm-hmm. yes yeah and and given that dr Wu was clearly in cahoots on some level with whatever military industrial complex d'onofrio's character was working for i just hope we're not heading for a movie where the next movie is going to be seeing 
these militarized dinosaurs on the field of you know human battle. Well, Chris, we totally, we totally, Chris, totally we are. are. Uh, no, yeah. like Chris Pratt is signed on for two more movies, and the yeah, but is that where they're going? Well, no, and the director, yes. the director said like it was important to him to like establish a like a path forward for this movie, and I feel very, very confident that that's the direction that he had in mind. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that an interesting movie about that could not be made. But I feel like it's suddenly it's not Jurassic Park anymore. You know, like that's like all of a sudden now you're taking the entire franchise is going to make a sharp left turn at that point. And it's it's going to be almost unrecognizable to me that. Well, in fairness, the third movie was also a totally sharp left turn where it had nothing to do with anything official. And it was literally two people who spent their life savings to get Sam Neill on an island to look for their kid. Yes. Like it is. But it was still we have veered off of the rails here. Yes, but it was still within the the sort of framework that had been established by the earlier movies in terms of the, you know, the scope of what the dinosaurs were all about and what they could do. I mean, I don't know. I think it would be a huge downer if the movies stopped being about people going into the world of dinosaurs and started being about dinosaurs in the world of people. I'm not. Yeah. It would be really depressing to see, like, dinosaurs fighting with soldiers, I think. I don't think Spielberg would ever have made that movie, for whatever that's worth. No, he never would have. His next Jurassic Park movie would have been, like, a kid abandoned on the island during the huge rush of people, making friends with the one raptor who's left, and, like, learning lessons about life, and then the raptor dies saving him, and everyone cries. So, Genevieve, I'm curious, what did you think about the the scene where there's the guy in the control room, and he goes to kiss his co-worker, and she's like, I have a boyfriend? What did you think of that scene? Oh, God. Um, again, that's a very self-aware moment that comes after an entire movie that does not yeah. seem very self-aware about gender roles at all. Um, so it feels like something that someone snuck into the writer's room in the middle of the night and, <laughs> and no one thought it was important enough to sort of negate. And so at the very end, they're like, look, we know about gender stuff. And it's like, it's too late. It is way too late. See, did you guys hear the fan theory about Chris Pratt's character? No. <laughs> this is actually, I think this is actually pretty good. So if, if you remember in the original Jurassic Park at the very beginning, Sam Neill is explaining how, oh my uh, God. how velociraptors will like fuck you up. Yeah. And there's, and there's yeah. this bratty kid that he terrifies. So the theory is that that bratty kid grew up to be Chris Pratt. And that's, that was how his interest in velociraptors got sparked. Okay. I mean, that's, that's cool. If he were a character worth connecting to, that would be super interesting. If that were, I mean, if that actually turns out to be more than just a fan theory, and 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 they want to do something with that, I think we would need to see him interact again with Sam Neill to make it really interesting. Yeah, I don't think I don't. I mean, they asked the director about that, and he's like, he said like, oh, I don't want to say anything because the speculation is so much fun. But I'm yeah. highly confident he'd never thought of that. But it's a good, you know, he oh. should. I think he should have. I think that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, all right, cool. So yes, yeah, so I think uh, that's a. We're going to have to move on from Jurassic World because we do all want to talk about some other dinosaur things. Um, so in, in the course of researching this, I came across this quote I, I liked from uh, paleontologist Matthew Carano, where he says, Dinosaurs are popular in other movies, but none of those movies have ever been any good. I mean, what's the second best dinosaur movie set over the past 20 years? You quickly drop down to garbage, right? So I thought I would throw that out to you guys. Are, is there a, uh, another dinosaur movie besides Jurassic Park that you guys think is good? There's the land before time. 
Oh, that's such a good one. Okay, take that one, go. I, I haven't seen it since I was seven, but I know I watched it at least 40 times. I can't remember anything, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. But it was good enough to, to keep you coming back those 39 other times. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think that why dinosaurs are so popular ties directly into the land before time thing. And that is, if a dinosaur exists, like there's the inherent tragedy of knowing that either we are somewhere we shouldn't be, or it is somewhere it shouldn't be. And there's that inherent narrative tension of never being able to resolve this situation. Like, short of Dinotopia, I think, there is no movie in which you see a dinosaur and you're like, all right, cool, I'm going this way, you go this way, bye. It is always a sign of disaster for someone. Um, the problem is that the movies that tend to sit down and go, we need to show tension. Can we get a dinosaur? Tend not to be very subtle movies from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Carnosaur 2. That stands out in my mind as emblematic of the sucky, general suckiness of dinosaur movies once you get outside Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about the Tree of Life of all movies because they have that very long sequence in the middle that actually stops for a second in a period of dinosaur activity that probably Chris could tell me about if I could give him any description of the dinosaurs, but because of my dinosaur aphasia, I cannot. And I have not seen that movie actually is that the terence malick tree of life it or? is it okay. is uh and the best part of it is just this random 25 minute chunk in the middle that starts with a big bang and goes up to the modern day huh. um and it sort of shows moments of grace throughout nature but the one that it shows first with like actual living beings is two dinosaurs one of them is wounded and the other one shows it mercy and i thought that it was i mean it's horribly anthropomorphic like maybe dinosaurs were just overflowing with mercy and the reason they went extinct is because they were too polite and we'll never know but the fact that we like to anthropomorphize something that is so inherently alien to us sort of ties back in for me to the end of jurassic world where we have the raptor who sort of has that kinship even when she doesn't have to with our lead guy and they like come to an understanding and like mm -hmm. you know everything that's happening there um but I also think that dinosaurs stand for that vast repository of knowledge of the past that, like, we don't have. We're, you know, we just recently discovered that dinosaurs used to be covered in feathers. Like, dinosaurs have been around, like, around and identified separately from dragons since, like, what, Dickens? Like, 1850? Savasco, you should know this. <laughs> yeah. When did dinosaurs first show up in fiction? Oh, in fiction? Yeah. Um... Well, I mean, the first, yeah, Dickens' Bleak House was the first okay. was the first reference. I mean, they don't show up in the. It's not like right. Jurassic Park <laughs> Bleak House. But, no, but, that's why it's the house is bleak because it's infested with yeah. dinosaurs. <laughs> no, but it is it is the first time that dinosaurs are are referenced in a, in a work of fiction mere, merely as a way of describing a scene. How how sort of like muddy and primordial the scene appeared, and you know, wouldn't it, you, one could almost imagine a megalosaur loping its way down the street, um, is the way the line goes. But, um, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, like, here we are, you know, 175 years later, and uh, we're still making revolutionary discoveries about dinosaurs. So, yeah. Okay, well, so so that's the first reference to dinosaurs in fiction. But the first time dinosaurs appear in fiction, according to my extensive research, uh, is was 1912, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. 
Uh-huh. Uh, some people argue that Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, 1864, was first, but he doesn't exactly describe dinosaurs, but he describes enormous reptile monsters. So take your pick between those. But Chris, you said that you read uh, The Lost World, right? Do you remember anything about that book? I, I, I mean, I read that. Um, gosh, I, I mean, I, I, my sense is that I read it sometime around like junior high school, something like that. And or maybe like when I was a freshman in high school. And I remember really thoroughly enjoying it and and having that sort of sense of wonder uh that i felt you know with the first jurassic park movie and just being like whoa isn't this so cool but as to the details of it i mean it's just you're asking me to go too far back and (laughs) into another era of my mind but you know i mean i i do remember quite enjoying the book um and you know again it's it's like what we've been talking about one of these things where humans are entering a world of dinosaurs um and you know they're sort of just like isla uh whatever uh, like nubar or something nubar yeah just like that isla nubar it's you know except it's on this sort of isolated plateau at the top of a cliff that you know man has not entered and dinosaur has not exited for all these many years and they sort of like you know remained in this enclave up there and so it has that sense of you know intruding into a place where you're not supposed to be and i mean i guess in in a way jurassic park was sort of the the cinematic answer to making that book into a movie but i'm actually i think there actually was a a, a very old movie made of um conan doyle's lost world which i haven't seen but i'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that 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 was never picked up on and made into a a, a movie in in you know more recent times it was. Certainly, yeah. It was. Uh, it was made into a miniseries for the BBC that started very young Matthew Reese and uh, Bob Hoskins. Okay, well, I did not know that. It, was it any good? <laughs> um, it was of middling quality. Okay. okay, but it definitely had that sort of the fever for scientific knowledge meant that people were willing to throw thousands of pounds at these people who were going to go into the woods and come out with a pterodactyl. I just think. Um... Dinosaurs are fascinating in part because of why we're fascinated by them. Uh, I think they're a childhood passion, not just because they're cool, but because it's kind of the first sense we get that Earth is really, really old. And there were all these things that happened uh, in deep history that we'll never fully understand. Mm. Um, The idea that there was this incredible, crazy ecosystem of these reptiles, or uh, I'm sorry, I know that's sacrilege, (laughs) of uh, (laughs) these large animals. Um, all over the place, and now they're all gone. It's probably mind-blowing when you're a kid. I don't remember if my mind was blown. Um, but then that that goes on into this comparison between uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World and the Crichton one. Uh, and what I remember most from Conan Doyle's Lost World is that it was very much like a piece of expedition fiction. There was a mm-hmm. lot of technical detail about how they organized the politics of their expedition And uh, I don't remember if there was like an adversary who was racing them or thought there would be no dinosaurs, but I think the Royal Society was involved. Um, And it came from this time when people were still exploring the world and thought there might be strange things out there in South America on some plateau to find. And then you move forward to um, the Crichton novels and the frontier now is genetics and mathematics. And uh, I don't know, I just think it's cool how that speaks to the times they were written and and Mm -hmm. where people expected to find 
dinosaurs and strange things. Doesn't that make you jealous, too, that you could just, as a fantasy writer, you could just write a story where people get on a boat and go find some dinosaurs? It's just so, yeah. so easy. <laughs> yeah. They got paid a lot more, too. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I totally... I mean, I think really, I have to agree so strongly with with what you just said, and which what we've all basically been saying is, I mean, I think it really is something that goes back to that sort of childhood sense of wonder that we we do feel about dinosaurs. Because I mean, I I remember as a kid, absolutely loving watching the the original Land of the Lost series on Croft Superstars, and you know, you couldn't have asked for lower budget, worse special effects. But just, it, but it did. It really didn't matter. I was so excited every time it was. I think I think that was the show that aired. Like you know, it aired on a Tuesday. So you know, it was a different thing on Croft Superstars every day. But I, I couldn't care less about you know Sigmund the Sea Monster and about uh, the Bugaloos. Like I was just waiting for Lo- Land of the Lost every week to come on because it, it was just it was just amazing. It was like the only opportunity that I had at the time as a kid to imagine you know, to look at something on the screen and see people interacting in that way with dinosaurs in the way that as a kid, you know, would have been a dream come true to me. And and in some ways, that's why I feel like when, when the first Jurassic Park came out, so much of the hubbub about that movie was, oh my gosh, for the first time now, we're seeing, you know, what can be done with really good special effects to make dinosaurs look alive. And for the first time, I'm seeing dinosaurs on screen and they seem real. And I never really felt that way because to me, they, they seemed just as real when I was watching Land of the Lost. And yes, I was a kid. So my, my critical eye was perhaps a bit, you know, less sophisticated, but, but I mean, you know, in Land of the Lost and, and, and any, anything like the, the old sort of those mysterious island movies with the sort of, uh, you know, those claymation dinosaurs that, you know, the, the overgrown flora and fauna type movies that were made in the sixties. Um, like all of those thrilled me in, in the same ways as seeing the, the hyper realistic dinosaurs of the Jurassic Park franchise thrilled me. And, and so to me, it was less about, about the CGI than just, just about the, the, um, imagining the, the world in which that you could interact with the dinosaurs. Right. It's funny, Chris, when you talk about how you see things as a kid, because I can remember when I read Jurassic Park as a kid, I imagined that Michael Crichton must be a genius to have come up with this idea of cloning dinosaurs. <laughs> and that that's what made you a successful author is if you were the one to come up with an idea like that, you know, that that's, uh-huh. that's how you became successful. And of course, as I got older, I realized that that idea, that all ideas have much older provenances than that. But so here's what, um, I found online, it says, uh, the popular theme of creating cloned dinosaurs from ancient DNA is long established in SF, an early example being The Hunting Season by Frank M. Robinson, 1951, uh, A Tyrannosaurus Rex is cloned in Roger Zelazny's Road Marks, 1979, and in George R. R. Martin's Tough Voyaging, 1986, um, and then it talks about Jurassic Park. But so, uh, so yeah, there's just, there's no original ideas, I guess. <laughs> um but does anyone have any sort of more contemporary um, dinosaur fantasy and science fiction stories that they want to mention that they're a fan of? Well, I know. I mean, Michael Swanwick's written a whole bunch of, well, I, don't, I mean, I, certainly several short stories about um, that feature dinosaurs. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his short fiction. And I, I'm trying to remember. I think one of them is actually called Skirtso with Tyrannosaur. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed that one. He wrote another one that was called um, 
something about a giganotosaur where, uh, gosh, I read this one about 10 years ago, but, but it, it basically the premise was where a, uh, a scientist is either, I can't remember if that they're genetically manipulated a la sort of, you know, the, the sort of undercover people on Star Trek to look like a dinosaur, or if somehow or another he's put, his mind is put into a dinosaur's body, but basically he inhabits a dinosaur's body in order to then go do field research among dinosaurs. Like there was some sort of time travel element to it as well. And it's then him sort of the, the sort of struggle between his human psyche and his emerging dinosaur psyche coming to the fore as he's living among these dinosaurs. That I really liked that story too. I think that's Scurzo with Tyrannosaur. I mean, that's the way I remember that story is that there, there's a guy in failing health and his mind is somehow projected into the body of a rampaging Tyrannosaurus and he becomes more and more kind of addicted to the experience? Well, I think I think he did it in two different ways. I think I think I'm, that's why I'm confusing him. So I think the one about the Giganotosaur is the one where it's, it, it's more of a sort of physical alteration of his body then. I think he's done it twice, basically, in two different ways. Okay. But, but the Giganotosaur one, I think it's actually called Riding the Giganotosaur. Um, that one had... Uh, sticks with me more that had a bigger impact on me actually so that i mean i i definitely would recommend reading that and i i perhaps i should go back and reread it given how sketchy my memory <laughs> of it is but i but i remember really loving it at the time i mean just a couple other ones i have on my list there was a series by richard schwedek in fantasy and science fiction where there were these genetically engineered tiny toy dinosaurs and i forget maybe they they weren't selling anymore and so they kind of all had to go to an orphanage kind of place and you know they're just waiting there to be adopted or something but uh I remember thinking those were pretty funny. Uh, of course, there's the classic Ray Bradbury story, A Sound of Thunder, where people go back in time to hunt dinosaurs, <laughs> and then somebody steps on a butterfly, changing right. uh, the future. Uh, there's a great, another great Ray Bradbury story called The Foghorn, where there's a dinosaur, and he comes and sort of serenades a lighthouse every year, because its uh, <laughs> foghorn sound reminds him of his lost love, lost dinosaur love. Um, and then there's, uh, I'm sure, I don't know how many people have read this one, but there's, there's one I really liked called The Bear Eater by Paul Pence. It was in the second Phobos fiction anthology called Hitting the Skids in Pixeltown. And it's about a, a guy, I don't know, I think he's like a, a trapper in the old West or frontier days or something. And he's out in the woods and, uh, there's a monster that the locals call the bear eater. And it turns out to be a surviving dinosaur and he has to survive against it. And I really thought that was a pretty cool story. Then of course there was the sort of. What, what to my mind was a bit of a train wreck of the, the, the Peter Jackson King Kong movie, which had dinosaurs galore. <laughs> but again, though, sort of just acting as window dressing and an excuse for sort of giant CGI chases. Do you think we're seeing more of a reflection of dinosaur fiction almost in the way that we're seeing a more scientific treatment of things like dragons than we are at like dinosaurs in and of themselves? If that makes any sense, like we have the Marie Brennan books where it is a very naturalist scientific approach to how the bones of a dragon go together, um, how they maintain flight, how they lay their eggs. And it's all that sort of thing that we were discovering a hundred years ago about dinosaurs. Yeah, the, I mean, the megalosaur that Dickens was referring to in Bleak House, he was referring to fossil finds of the megalosaur bones in England. And when they were first found, they were thought to either have come from a like a biblical race of giants or from a dragon. <laughs> and and you gotta realize when, you know, we've actually to this day never found a complete megalosaur skeleton, but back then they you know, they obviously had even fewer bits and pieces, and so that you know, they were extrapolating what 
the megalosaur would have even looked like, you know, from a couple of little, you know, pieces of shin or something. And so, the, you know, their idea of a megalosaur was like this big sort of lumbering, essentially like a, a giant turtle without a shell. And and now, you know, the idea of a megalosaur is something more like a, almost like a, you know, an allosaur or a, a small tyrannosaur. I, uh, what Genevieve said about um, dinosaurs and science made me think that I think the place I most often see dinosaurs invoked is in connection to asteroids and extinction, um, which is part of that tragedy we were talking about, about how dinosaurs are sort of inherently tragic figures, um, because it is hard to think about them without thinking about the fact that they're not here anymore, uh, without thinking about the fact that they were on the planet much longer than we've been, uh, and then overnight, uh, not literally overnight, you know what I mean, guys, <laughs> um, very, very rapidly, all vanished. Um, and uh, that's often how dinosaurs are positioned in fiction as kind of this uh, ruling class that we usurped, that these little ratty mammal ancestors of people overthrew just by surviving. Well, that's interesting. We had a listener, Chelsea Tsuru, who mentions the 90s sitcom show Dinosaurs. And oh, yeah. I don't know that I ever, I don't, I don't think I ever watched it much, but I do kind of remember the, the last episode. And I think there's, there's something like they're looking at some little mammals and being like laughing at them. And then a comet comes in into the earth or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it was something along those ways. I remember this sort of <laughs> melancholy. Uh... Wow, that's dark. <laughs> And then the dinosaur wakes up in bed next to Susan Plachet. <laughs> no, 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 that's something else. But the, uh, yeah, it's funny because in a way that that sitcom dinosaurs thing, I I didn't watch it too much because I actually found it pretty grating. But um, I, I remember seeing a few episodes here and there. And as far as I recall, the premise was basically almost exactly like the premise of like, the Honeymooners, which was also the premise of the Flintstones. So it's sort of like you had Flintstones redone where the people were the dinosaurs. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, literally, I mean, I think he had, you know, like a next door neighbor that was the Barney guy or whatever, but he was a different type of dinosaur. <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of... So can you explain to me what you guys are talking about? What is this? <laughs> this sounds insane. There was this, um, it, it, it was a sitcom. That was done with sort of, uh, you know, a, a combination of animatronic and puppet dinosaurs. Um, that was literally just, you know, they, they took the, the premise of the Honeymooners or, or the Flintstones. It's, you know, some blue collar guy who drives a bus or works on the sewers, whatever it was. But he just happens to be a, a dinosaur and all these people are living in some primeval forest world. And, you know, he's married to a some other species of dinosaur. You know, all the characters are dinosaurs, but it's basically like watching the honeymoon. But they talk and they wear clothes and live in houses. And yeah, yeah, they wear, he wears a flannel shirt and a hard hat to work every day. I mean, but it, it, it had this sort of weird cultish success. I don't know how many seasons it actually lasted. I don't think more than one or two, but it, for, for a brief shining moment, it was like immensely popular. <laughs> and then it immediately so vanished when people realized how silly it was, but... Wow. Well, it's funny, Chris, because you mentioned the Flintstones as well, and that's you know part yeah. of a like a proud tradition of uh, putting <laughs> humans and dinosaurs together in movies and TV shows and stuff. And yeah. I've always thought it was really funny. You know, uh, Gary Larson, who did the Far Side cartoons, he would have well, he had a lot of really funny cartoons involving dinosaurs, and some of them involved dinosaurs stepping on cavemen and stuff like that. 
And he always said that he always felt really guilty doing that. And he felt like there should be a cartoonist confessional where you should go and you say, like, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. I have drawn human beings and dinosaurs together. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It was worth it, though. I remember those cartoons. They're fantastic. Yes, I do, too. The one with the thagomizer named after (laughs) the late Thag Simmons. Uh, actually, that, that, that brings up, uh, there, we had another listener comment from Josh McIntyre. He says, don't forget dinosaurs and Calvin and Hobbes. He says, those books portray oh, the yeah. essence of what it means to be young and have your imagination captured by their magnificence. Mm. Oh, yeah. Calvin and Hobbes is like my favorite work of literature in the English canon. So uh, <laughs> that is true. Um, they were pretty great. Calvin had an interesting relationship with, uh, with dinosaurs. Sometimes he was the dinosaur. He wanted to be the T-Rex. And sometimes he was sort of fleeing from them in his time machine cardboard box or <laughs> what have you. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it, I guess, maybe the biggest thing about dinosaurs and Calvin and Hobbes is just you can't imagine writing a comic strip about a ferociously imaginative American kid and not having dinosaurs. It would have been this gaping hole. Right. I remember there was this really funny, in one of his commentaries, Bill Watterson says, uh, one of his commentaries to one of his early strips, he says, look at this dinosaur I drew with its like, I don't know, it's like fat legs or something. He's like, obviously, I did no research whatsoever. And uh, then he got a lot of criticism for that. So then he actually did a lot of research on dinosaurs and the dinosaurs in his later (laughs) strips are drawn with uh, extreme scientific rigor. Hmm. Except for the ones in F-14s. (laughs) <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're the dinosaurs. <laughs> if, a, if a dinosaur flew sure an F-14, dinosaurs. that's exactly what it would look like. Can you reach the controls in an F-14 if you have tiny T-Rex arms? I'm genuinely asking. <laughs> you need to use one of those little dinosaur mouth ex- arm extender things. A guy at my screening of Jurassic World brought a T-Rex puppet and used it to make noises throughout the film. A grown man. I saw that on Twitter, yeah. So what, what exactly kind of noises was he making? Oh, sort of baby T-Rex noises. I guess he didn't want to actually disrupt the movie. But every time a dinosaur was about to eat another dinosaur, he would hold up the puppet and go, and were you sitting close? To were you sitting close to this person? Directly behind him. I watched him the entire time. And I thought about how deeply dinosaurs have entered the imagination sort of as a cultural osmosis that you would bring a dinosaur puppet to a dinosaur movie because you did not want to be left out of the action to any degree. Hmm. In terms of that osmosis, do you guys feel like velociraptors <laughs> were a thing before Jurassic Park? Because no. I almost feel like the raptor no. was the, the, the species that came out best from Jurassic Park. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think anyone star. had ever heard of them before <laughs> Jurassic Park. Yeah. Yeah, they, they definitely... Did come out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Everybody knew Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus. Those were like iconic. But yeah. the Velociraptor became this demon of the preteen imagination. Yeah, I, I mean, you realize, speaking of scientific accuracy, that, the, that you know, real world Velociraptors would have only been about the size of like a dog or a turkey. Yeah. They, but... they would not have been these huge, you know, man or larger than man height things. Isn't the Uteraptor I mean, you... like the right size? Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. For for what they showed on the screen, you mean? Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we were talking about that in Cess, like, they probably just didn't use Utahraptor because it just sounds, it doesn't sound as cool as Velociraptor. Right. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, uh, in one of those moments of, like, wait, 
could this really happen? Um, in the movie, you know, when, when he's there, you know, leading the pack of raptors as the alpha. And I'm thinking, like, could you actually train dinosaurs to do this? And then I'm thinking, well, you know, to the extent that they are, you know, sort of the, the, the predecessors to modern birds. I mean, I guess obviously you can train falcons to hunt for you and whatnot. And, um, you know, so theoretically, I guess you could have. I, I, th- that just struck me as very strange that they would have bonded with this this guy and his motorcycle as as like the the <laughs> you know the leader of their hunting pack. I don't know if you saw Chris. You know, there was the, uh, that 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 shot was in the trailer of him riding the motorcycle with the three Raptors running alongside him, and someone had photoshopped yeah. it so that they're all riding motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that it's really not that many steps further along <laughs> from what we had on the screen. <laughs> Actually, the thing Genevieve was saying, though, about the guy making the dinosaur roaring noise, that reminded me of a, of a funny quote I came across where a, a paleontologist was complaining about the movie. And he says, they're all way too noisy. That's the other thing. The loudest animals in the world in these movies are the predators. In real life, they're usually the quietest animals. It's a good way to starve running around screaming your head off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did think about that a lot because predators are so lazy in real life. They have to be, um, which actually leads to a lot of interesting behavior. I don't know if dinosaurs had any of this, but there are uh, prey animals who, when they see a cheetah or something coming after them, will stop and kind of jump around because they're bragging. They're basically saying, I have a lot of energy. I'm in really good shape. If you chase me, it's going to be a long chase. So you might as well just give up. And this actually works uh, a lot of times the attacker will break off because they don't want to deal with a healthy animal. I don't know how that's related to dinosaurs, but maybe they could have put it in the movie. This is already a more interesting movie than Jurassic World. <laughs> yeah. Like, just this one moment that you're explaining right now. Well, it gets back to what you were saying earlier, Seth, about, you know, wh- <laughs> why would a velociraptor chase a jeep down a highway? You know, I, they, when, as you say, most predators, their energy is good for short bursts, not for, you know, like, racing cars down the road for yeah um, there was this extended for extended chase scenes this apparently very bitter argument among paleontologists about whether t-rex was a a hunting predator or a scavenger um just because i think the Mm, argument was eating dead things would have been a lot more energy efficient for a big animal like that Actually, Seth, one thing I thought in this mo- that this movie was missing that the original jurassic park had was that the characters knew a lot about dinosaurs and used that knowledge to survive and there really yeah, wasn't mm-hmm. any of that in Jurassic World, but like the like the kids obsessed with dinosaurs, and that never really figures into the plot at all. Uh, but it was, so it would have been cool if at some point he was like, "Hey, if we jump around and show this dinosaur that we have a lot of energy, it's going to go after easier prey." I don't know, something like that would have would have made a nice addition to the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, although whenever they did that, even in the original movie, it was always sort of like bunk science. I mean, the the, the Sam Neill character's entire premise that. That really, though, the first movie kind of hinges on that tyrannosaurs only hunt by motion detection is there's as far as I understand, there's no basis in there's, there's no scientific basis for believing that there's any truth to that. It's actually uh, in the second novel, the one Crichton wrote before the second movie. Uh, there's a great scene where there's this sort of team of evil scientists and they're trying to steal all the dinosaur eggs. And one of them tells mm-hmm. the others that uh, the T-Rex can't see you if you hold still. Uh, so there's this really satisfying scene where all the scumbag scientists get picked off one by one by this uh, T-Rex that's just eating them from the ground. And they all think the other ones are just moving a little too much. And if they only <laughs> hold still. And then I think it cuts away to the hero characters who are talking about how some researcher 
figured out it was all just a mistake and T-Rex oh, okay. can see you perfectly well if you're standing still. So Crichton okay. at least caught up on that. Okay. Okay. I, for me, I, I, the fact that there wasn't much like actually about dinosaurs in this, this movie, I know we're, we spo- we're mm-hmm. supposed to move on from Jurassic World, but uh, it was weird to me that they started doing a few things about dinosaur behavior that never went anywhere. Like their Indominus Rex was supposed to be able to camouflage and hide itself from heat vision and sense thermal stuff. But those are all mentioned and explained and then never, ever used again. Uh, which I think, Genevieve, you were talking about the economy of the original. Uh, those are a sign of probably chaos in the writer's room. A lot of rewrites. Yeah, I don't know if you, if you, know, if you heard, Seth, about there were, like, basically there was, you know, there were four writers credited on this movie. Yeah. And there was basically like a huge dispute with the writers guild about between the two teams of writers about who should get credit for what and whether the the previous team should be get a screenwriting credit. So, yeah, that just wow. bolsters your point about too many cooks and maybe not a unified artistic vision. Yeah, uh not to not to keep hitting this point, but every time we saw dinosaurs interacting with men with guns on screen, I was mourning the fact that we didn't get more of a chance to see dinosaurs interacting with dinosaurs which I think is the real fantasy. And when that happened, the movie really came alive. The fight between the Ankylosaur and the Indominus was really good. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right, cool. So I think we should probably uh, start wrapping this up. Does anyone have any final words they want to say about Jurassic World, dinosaurs, and what fantasy and science fiction? What to say about Jurassic World that we have not <laughs> torn to pieces already? <laughs> well, so yeah, so if, if uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex was a scavenger, it could come along and eat jurassic world at this point because we have thoroughly killed it (laughs) well i mean it was a good time yeah i i mean i i feel like we we have probably well i i speaking for myself i feel like we have certainly savaged the movie but in a way i feel like we've savaged it more than it deserves because it's not a good movie by any stretch but it was certainly a fun movie i mean i enjoy i I don't it's it's not one of those movies that i walked out of it thinking like oh god i just wasted my money like I felt like I got my money's worth. It was a fun movie. If you want to go see dinosaurs, you know, wreaking havoc, uh, you know, it will certainly deliver on that. I thought Genevieve's review was really on point. I recommend her yeah. review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, like as an audience member, I enjoyed it. But as a writer, I didn't particularly admire it. But if you're just looking right. for dinosaur mayhem, you know, it's all right. Yeah. All right, cool. So I thought I was going to uh, end things with this Ray Bradbury quote I, I kind of like that I came across. So Ray Bradbury says, I have never listened to anyone who criticized my taste in space travel, sideshows, or gorillas. When this occurs, I pack up my dinosaurs and leave the room. Indeed. All right, great. So yes, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Chris Savasco and Genevieve Valentine and Seth Dickinson. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Chris Savasco, Genevieve Valentine, and Seth Dickinson for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Robert H. Watson from the UK and Adams from Australia. Adams writes, A must-listen for any sci-fi and fantasy fan. They get the biggest names and ask thought-provoking, intelligent questions. The hosts definitely know their stuff and are probably the most well-read people I know. 
The best part of the show isn't even the interviews either. The discussions after the interviews are why this show is so good and why I have become a fan. Keep up the good work, guys. So a big thanks to Adams for that great review. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Courtney Sherwood, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and also to our very first Patreon patron, Stephen Byrne, who just increased his pledge amount to $1.25 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to thank Michael King, who just became PayPal patron number 114. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.